Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, starting at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Health and safety matters. Risk registers are important and safeguarding is a key part of any healthy church's profile. In fact, tomorrow evening, it happens at our church council. We're going to be reviewing, as we do each year, all of our processes on those matters. A number of years ago, a friend of mine fell off a ladder. The air ambulance had to come and pick him up. What nobody knows, other than those who are actually at the incident, of which I was not one, was that the ladder was a fully extended double ladder, two ladders in fact, and that the fully extended double ladder was in the upraised bucket of a JCB. Health and safety matters. In fact, a few months ago, when demolishing the old building there at number one uh, Leadenhall, a, a group of scaffolders were standing around chatting to each other, I know one of them, and uh, suddenly, with no warning, they were on the ground floor. A great slab of concrete several meters wide fell through five floors of the building and landed their feet, missing all of them. I don't think anybody's heard about that until now. <laughs> So health and safety matters, and it saves lives, and risk registers are important, and safeguarding is really, really important. Well, for the next four weeks, really, it's risk and safety and health that is at the forefront of our thinking on these Sunday evenings. And in short, the Apostle Paul wants us to be a safe church. We've come to the second half of the central section of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and to date, fruitful partnership has been key, and Paul wants his beloved Philippian gospel co-workers to be really productive in their joyful service of Jesus. The image early in chapter 1 of harvest time and of each believer, as it were, coming in at the end of harvest, at the end of their life, or when the Lord Jesus returns with a great trailer load of grain of fruit from a life well lived as a Christian gospel co-worker. That's been Paul's picture. And the pivot of the letter was last week. And we saw the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, two model key gospel partners held up for us. Fruitful workers laboring shoulder to shoulder for the faith of the gospel. But this week, we have what appears to be a new direction on first reading, verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And it seems then Paul takes a slightly different tack 
And it seems that he's sort of finished the letter, and then he starts it up again. It's clear that safety is the issue. He says it there. It's no trouble to me to write this, and it's safe for you. But not physical safety, or even emotional or psychological security, spiritual safety. And so Paul wants us to be a safe church. But is it a diversion? That, that is, um, how come there appears to be this sort of slight change of tack? Now, some people have suggested, and through the years, that actually what we've got in Philippians is two different letters, and the end of one was lost, and the beginning of the other also was lost, and somebody stack it together. May I say, very amateurly. Um, and uh, you know, if you really were trying to stick together two letters, you'd hope you'd do a slightly better job than that. Others, in fact, one of the very best commentators, a guy called Lightfoot, on this letter, um, suggested that Paul got distracted. And maybe for an hour or two, you know, he went, I went off for a coffee or something, or maybe for a day or two, or, or, or maybe for a week or two, and then he comes back and he sort of slightly takes off on a different tack. And I think we could do slightly dare I say it, in face of Lightfoot, likely better than that. But have a look at chapter 1, verse 27 across the page. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, says Paul, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now that's what we've been looking at so far. Paul wants fruitful co-workers in the gospel. But from verse 28, you can see that he mentions opponents, not frightened anything by your opponents, a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not even believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have." And so it seems to me that what Paul has done in the first half of the central section of the letter is to deal with what it looks like to strive shoulder to shoulder as a faithful, fruitful gospel partner. But now he turns his attention to the opposition. And the opposition is the opposition that Paul is currently experiencing in Rome, that he experienced when he was with them in Philippi, and that they themselves are experiencing. So it must be a very widespread opposition to the Christian gospel, something that is really going to rock them and prevent them from being fruitful gospel Christian men and women. And so my aim this week and for the next few is that we remain fruitful and faithful gospel partners, that we stay safe, that we don't get hijacked or derailed from being Genuine, and I'm not just thinking about, you know, in the next three weeks. Now, I'm thinking about a lifetime of faithful service. And we look around us, you know, some of you, I mean, I'm not talking about myself here, that would be a miracle, but might have 50 years of gospel service left, maybe 60, if the Lord Jesus doesn't come back. And Paul wants us to stay safe, spiritually safe, engaged in fruitful ministry, and not to be derailed. Well, today is a bit of an introduction. It's really a two-part talk this week and next, and then three-part the week after, so make sure you don't miss it. 
But uh, two early lessons then in staying safe. First, we must open our eyes to the dangers against us and to the privilege that belongs to us. Two parts to point one, the dangers and the privilege. And then the secondly, which is just really an application of the first, we must do our sums. Do the math, as they say over the pond. Now, we need to open our eyes to the dangers against us and open our eyes to the privileges that belong to us. That's the first point, the dangers. And verse 2 must rank as one of the most blunt and brutal statements in the whole of the New Testament. I can think of three, perhaps four other statements that might rival two on the lips of Jesus, actually. But look at verse 2. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the opposition. And in order to understand this, we need to think a bit about the opposition. Just down the reading, three times Paul talks about putting confidence in the flesh. And confidence in the flesh is trusting in the achievements of my own religious effort to get me right with God and stay in his good books. That's confidence in the flesh. Trusting in the achievements of my own religious effort to get me right with God and stay in his good books. And throughout the ministry of the Apostle Paul and throughout the early church period, Christian preachers and Christian churches were plagued both by Jews who claimed to be Christian and by Jewish people who were not Christian at all. And these men of what was known as the Circumcision Party insisted that in order to be genuinely considered part of God's people, new Christian converts from outside the Jewish race needed to adopt Jewish custom and Jewish religious practice. And in a sense, it doesn't matter much. I mean, you'll find some people who want to go to the stake for whether they were Christian or whether they weren't Christian, whether they were Christians who were overly Jewish or whether they were non-Christians who were just Jewish. But in a sense, it doesn't matter terribly which they were. It's the teaching that matters. It's the teaching that matters that says you've got to add something to simple trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, either to get in to God's people or to stay in amongst God's people. And I guess you can understand why People thought this. After all, you know, here were the Christians. They were suddenly claiming to be the true people of God without any of the kind of worries about 2,000 years' worth of religious observance. How dare they? What a nerve. And so these Judaizers insisted that if the Gentiles were to become part of God's people, then they needed to adopt the ritual practices of Judaism. They need to obey the Old Testament law of God. They need to get circumcised to show that they really belonged. So they were ritualists. You must do all the washing practices of the Old Testament. You mustn't eat bacon and all nice things like that. They were, they, they were legalists. They needed to obey the Old Testament law, keep the Sabbath, keep all the Old Testament festivals. And they were ceremonialists. You're going to get circumcised if you're really going to be in. And you might say, well, you know, what's the harm in that? And Paul would say, a huge amount. A huge amount. 
Because by adding to simple faith in Jesus Christ, the ritualistic, legalistic, ceremonialist demands that you can't be a true member of God's people if you don't add your own religious work. Rule-based religion. Pay-as-you-go spirituality. Brownie point membership of God's people. Air miles earned to get into heaven. It undermines the whole of the Christian gospel, which says Jesus has done it all and he offers it all to us for free. Full membership, no qualifications. And of course, confidence in the flesh, it not only gives false assurance, but it also limits gospel advance. Because only those with these privileges are truly in and it ties converts into endless religious ceremony. I've got to do this, I've got to do that, rather than being productive gospel co-workers out there proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And so now look at, with that background, look at the way Paul addresses them. Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evildoers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh and the language, as you get into it, it's really, really biting because the dog was not a pampered pooch called Pippa. The dog was a semi, what, sorry, there's a staff dog called Pippa who's, you know, very dear to our hearts. So anyway, the dog was not this pampered pooch. The dog was the semi-wild street dog that fed on carrion and filth and garbage, sticking its nose into refuse and detritus and all sorts of other ghastly stuff. And what Paul is saying is these gospel plus guys, who loyalty card religion, you've got to do this and do that, they may seek to insist you keep the ritual laws of washing. <laughs> They're no different to the street dog. To God, they are unclean and filthy because they've added to simple trust in Jesus. See how biting it is? And then evil workers, why? Uh, the, the legalist is saying, well, you must keep you know, every festival, every Sabbath, all the rules and so forth. And, and Paul says, no, rather than law keepers, they're evil workers on completely the wrong side. And then perhaps the most cutting insult of them all, Paul takes the word for circumcision and changes it. It's very clever. Instead of using the word for circumcision, which is cutting around, he takes a word cutting down. And it was the pagans in the Old Testament who used to cut themselves to show their zeal for God. And so he says, these guys who are insisting that you must get circumcised, if you're truly going to be a member of God's people, they're no different to the prophets of Baal who cut themselves in their pagan religion, idolatry. The language couldn't be blunter, could it? Well, why does he speak so bluntly? We'll find out more next week. But by suggesting that I have to do stuff to get right with God and I have to perform to stay in God's good books, works-based religion leads converts, converts up a path of completely false assurance because 
my flesh, confidence in what I can do, I can never be good enough for God. And in addition, it ties its adherence into an endless cycle of trying to be good and failing and trying to and more religious services and more ceremonies and more deeds of devotion to show God how much I mean it. And I can never do it. And I've been asking myself, you know, whether such things exist today. And the difficulty is, you know, I've been a Christian since 1979. I've been in Christian leadership since 1990. Very rarely have I seen significant numbers of Christians who've deserted fruitful, mature service for rank unbelief. You don't often find that. Sometimes you do. Much more, you find people leaving a genuine Simple trust in Jesus for a form of religion that just looks more religious and can be confined to just what goes on in the building and that depends on me and is more acceptable more widely. So here's the sort of area we might think about. There's no doubt that there are real Christian believers in the Roman Catholic Church and in Anglo-Catholicism. There's no doubt there are real Christian believers there. But there is no doubt that Roman Catholicism gives pride of place to my work and having to be good enough how I perform confession, penance, mass, confession, penance, mass. And particularly in a city like London, where so many people are coming in from Europe and so forth, predominantly Catholic countries, you will find that can be very attractive to people. To drift away from a simple trust in Jesus Christ to a more works-based, showy religion. There was a period in the 1990s where a group emerged in London called the London Church of Christ. And the London Church of Christ, actually, they used to hang around at the back of uh, just outside St. Helens and try and persuade people to come and join the London Church of Christ. And they said, unless you are baptized in this particular way, you can't really access the full benefits of belonging to the Church of Christ. The Gospel Plus, works-based religion. And whilst this may not fit precisely... Throughout my lifetime as a Christian, the Church of Christ has been plagued by those who argue that a second experience of initiation is required in addition to simple trust in the Lord Jesus if a person is to be truly saved and genuinely useful. Not a precise fit, but the demand of a second experience of the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Spirit, apart from simply trusting Jesus a further step of initiation, something in addition to hearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It ends up dividing Christians into first and second class, diverting Christians into pursuit of a religious experience and deceiving Christians. Those kind of things, all of them, destroy partnership. One group of people think uh, they are better than another, They destroy partnership with one group of people offering a gospel of good news of salvation through simple trust and another demanding that we add to that trust. They neutralize fruitfulness because we become obsessed with our religious works, worship services, religious experiences in buildings, 
rather than living and speaking for Jesus as those who are his. The moment we seek to break new ground for the gospel with a gospel, so-called gospel that adds on to the true gospel, that moment we shut down gospel advance. So that's what we're to look out for in terms of the dangers. But Paul's spiritual safeguarding doesn't simply stop with the negative warning. To the command to open our eyes and watch out, Paul adds the positive encouragement of verse 3. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So we need to open our eyes to the dangers and be very aware of the dangers. And we need to open our eyes to the privileges that belong to us. And to lay claim to be the true circumcision is to lay claim to be the true people of God. Circumcision was the marker that set God's chosen people apart as his covenant people, inheriting all the blessings of his promises. The cutting off of the foreskin symbolized the setting apart of a person to belong to God and the cutting away of the flesh, but it was only ever an external marker. And the whole of the Old Testament longs for a day where God would, if you like, do an operation of circumcision on the inner person. So you read in Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, that you may live. And so says Paul, in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, God has performed a supernatural miracle within and circumcised our hearts. We are the true circumcision, the true people of God. Not only so, three doing words, worshipping by the Spirit, glorying in Christ Jesus, and putting no confidence in the flesh. To worship by the Spirit is to be somebody who has inherited all the promises of Jeremiah and Ezekiel of a changed heart, whereby our heart has been washed clean. God himself has come to dwell within us, and we can live for Jesus and for God 24-7, 360 degrees, regardless of whether we go into buildings and engage in ceremonies. We've been set apart for God through Jesus Christ. We are now the people who worship by the Spirit, not just in special festivals, but 24-7, Monday through Friday, the weekends as well. We worship in the Spirit And we glory in Christ. If we glory in Christ, we are the true people of the Messiah, the people of the King, the people of God's kingdom. And that Messiah is Christ Jesus, who was crucified on the cross to carry God's judgment at sin. And we put no confidence in the flesh because we've concluded that no matter how hard we might try, we can never be good enough or do enough or keep enough rules or perform enough in order to get ourselves into good, God's good books. And so we see what Paul is saying. Let's open our eyes and look at the dangers of these gospel plus confidence in the flesh teachers. But then let's open our eyes and do what we've been doing all evening, consider the rich blessings that are ours through belonging to Jesus Christ, the true people of the living God with God himself dwelling within us, such that we live for him, love him, serve him, belong to him with confidence that we are his 
regardless of our performance. Now you can see what uh, Paul is doing. He's inoculating us against, if you like, the enemy. I mean, many of us won't have watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but I think it's worth just a little mention at this point. The knights go in search of the Holy Grail. They come to a remote castle in northern France. They aim to persuade the occupants to join in their quest for the Holy Grail. And as they approach, two heads of French guards peer over the battlements and they utter the immortal lines of your mother is a hamster and your father smells of elderberries. That's completely to one side as a French insult to the English knight. And the English knight shouts out, we've come in search of the Holy Grail. And then the French occupants of the castle shout back, we've already got one. And it's a brilliant response because if you've already got a Holy Grail, you're not going to go looking for the Holy Grail, are you? And in a, I mean, in a very, very kind of tangential sort of way, <laughs> this, is what, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Philippians. How could you possibly want to get circumcised when you're already circumcised inside in your heart and you belong completely to God? How, how can you possibly want to head off to these uh, ceremonies and feast days and keepings of the Sabbath and all the rest of it when you are already set apart for God 24-7? How, how can you possibly um, be seeking to uh, reimpose the law on Christians when Christians are those who worship by the Spirit and glory in the Messiah and have learned that Confidence in the flesh is dead-end religion. The trouble is, it is really unsettling, isn't it? When somebody comes to us and seeks to persuade us that to be genuinely part of the true people of God, we need something additional. When as a young Christian in a residential university college, part of the Christian Union there, there was a little group within the Christian Union who used to meet regularly to pray that I would receive the second blessing experience because somehow what I had in simple trust in Jesus was not sufficient. See how divisive it is? See how dangerous it is if you head off down that gospel plus line? Some of you may have had that wretched experience of having others suggest that you haven't actually quite made it yet because you need some additional initiation. As a young Christian worker here in the mid-90s, a close friend of mine on the staff was taken out to lunch by a leading figure in one of the major London churches that pushed Second Blessing theology. And he was told, you know, you will never really be successful in Christian ministry unless you have this second initiation experience. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That teaching is so ugly, so divisive, and so dangerous to the gospel. Well, actually, the answer to all of it is there in verse 1, isn't it? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. 
But what Paul does now in verses 4 through 7 is to hold himself up as an example. He held himself up as an example in chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, of what it looks like positively to be a gospel worker. But now he holds himself up uh, as an example of what it looks like not to put confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, here is Paul asking us to do the math, to, 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 do our, to do our sums. He's asking us to look at Christ and to look at whatever we might think is positive for us in terms of our human achievements to get right with God. And he says, look, I had it all, and he really did his pedigree. He was circumcised on the eighth day, eighth day the true Israelite child was circumcised on the eighth day. So he's no latter-day convert. He wasn't circumcised as an adult. He was circumcised. He is a true Israelite, as he says there in verse uh, 5, of the people of Israel. So he may have been born in Tarsus in southeastern Turkey, but he was a a true blue-blooded Israelite, if you like. More than that, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the most precious of all the tribes. They were the ones who stayed loyal to Judah. Benjamin was the favorite son uh, of of, of Rachel and uh, of of Jacob. He was that precious child. And Benjamin, of course, the first king of Israel, came from the tribe of Benjamin. So Saul, he had it all. And, And he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, to speak Hebrew was rare, but to know the Old Testament scriptures cover to cover uh, in the original languages was rarer still. And, and Saul says, Paul says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was royalty. And then in addition, his performance as to the law, the Pharisees were the most zealous of them all. As to zeal, he went around persecuting the church. And as to righteousness, he kept the law meticulously. So in our terms, if you were to look at uh, Paul's CV, you know, you find here is his CV. He came from the right family. He was sent to the right school. He attended the right college in the right university. He graduated with the right degree. He got a place in the right firm. He rose to the right position, and he achieved the right recognition. But it's confidence in the flesh. And so when Paul saw Jesus Christ who had done it all and achieved what Saul, Paul himself, could never achieve through his own effort. He counted it all as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, we must draw things to a close. I had a very short career trying to sell spy holes. You probably... I don't know if you've seen spirals, you know, there's little things that people, a lot of them about now. But back in the uh, late 70s, they, they were very new. And people didn't have spy holes in their doors. I was 18, trying to make money. And very easy, you could pick one up for 99p. 
and sell them, well, for anything up to 20 quid. Uh, it took about 100 houses to go around selling these spy holes, and uh, you get one every round, about 100. So days work, you can make quite a lot of money, but it was a lot of doing the patter. And usually, if you went at the daytime, the person in the house might you know, be slightly more suspecting. Uh, it's not less suspecting. And so the patter was, you know, there are a lot of burglars around. Have you read the crime statistics? And you look very vulnerable and all the rest of it. It wasn't... <laughs> wasn't entirely. Anyway, uh, but um, at the end of one very, very long day, I, I knocked on this person's uh, door, ran through the patter, and, and it was a guy, and he was looking, like, kind of looking at me as if I really was very, very weird. And then all he did was point at the door, and it was glass. <laughs> and I was trying to sell him a spy hole. And I, I, know, I, fled, I fled. I fled. <laughs> I, have to tell you, I have to tell you. I hope. I hope he's not listening to the if he is. Anyway, it, was, it had been a long day. But do you see what the apostle is saying to the to the Philippians? Look, look at what you've got. Look at what you've got. Look how dangerous the opposition is. Confidence in the flesh. It, it, it doesn't achieve anything. You can't. Actually, it will wrap you up in religious knots. Three concluding comments. The strength of Paul's language. If you're going to stay safe, you cannot become a squeamish appeaser. I mean, Paul's language is really strong. That's because it really matters. And too many Christians are squeamish appeasers. And if St. Helens is going to stay safe, and you're going to stay safe, You've got to see the opposition for what it is and not be squeamish. And, and then we need to be fruitful calculators. We, we need to spend time looking at the Lord Jesus and how glorious it is, as we, as we have done all evening, how wonderful it is that in Jesus Christ, by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, we're offered full membership. And we can put all of this religious mumbo-jumbo to one side. We don't need to add to it. We've got it all already. We've got the glass door. We can see clearly. Don't offer me some stupid, cheap substitute. And then I'm cautious about this because I don't think Paul is actually telling the Philippians at this point you know, that they've got particular issues themselves with adding to the gospel. He's saying... Watch out for those outside, which is why I've always, through this talk, gone outside. Because I don't think he is saying, oh, I think you've got real problems. But nonetheless, we do need to be barnacle scrapers. And that has to do with the bottom of boats, which you lift out of the water and you scrape the barnacles off. And it is important just to have our eyes open. Are we developing a culture which says, oh, you, yeah, you've got Jesus, but you've got to have this as well? It'll tie you in knots. It'll stop you being fruitful. You'll become obsessed with religious this and religious that, tied into your buildings. We worship by the Spirit everywhere, all the time. The Spirit dwells within us. We're the people of Christ. We're the heirs of the covenant blessings. We've got it all. Now go and tell people about it. That's fruitful. Let's pray. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I do pray, Lord, for every single one of us in this building, those joining us online, that every one of us would rejoice in the riches that are ours in Jesus Christ. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.